I think we should start today by acknowledging that we shouldn't really be here in Genesis 8 and 9 thinking about covenant, you know, looking at Noah coming out of the ark and, and thinking about the idea of covenant in our series. I mean, not because there's no covenant for us to see here. Uh, on the contrary, the, the word is there repeatedly in the text we just read, isn't it? Seven times, I think, in that last paragraph. Covenant, covenant, covenant. And it comes under a subheading in our ESV, all about covenant. And it comes with a covenant sign, the, the rainbow in the cloud, verse 12. Obviously, there's good reason that we do visit this scripture today to, to better understand this idea of covenant that we're looking at. But at a much more basic level, we shouldn't really be in this text. Because if we think back to that first covenant that we were looking at last week and the way that it was broken by Adam, then we realize that the consequence for that should have been death that day for Adam. Because God said to Adam in, in that first covenant in Genesis 2:17, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And there was a spiritual death, no doubt. We fell in sin, and humanity was separated from God, cast out from his presence in that garden. But with his literal life, Adam survived God's judgment. But we might think that Adam should have ceased to be, and so Noah should neither be, and we here today shouldn't be. There would be no Noah, there would be no us, no covenant in Genesis 8 and 9 for us to be sitting and thinking about today if that first covenant with Adam did end in literal physical death then and there when Adam broke it. And so the very fact that we are here looking at Genesis 8 and 9 is entirely down to grace. At so many levels, despite all the justice that should have flowed against us all, God has been gracious with us all the way. And yet judgment must inevitably come. Otherwise God is not just and righteous against sin. Anyway, with that necessary detail noted, let's dive in and look at this text and this covenant here in Genesis 8 and 9. And the covenant here comes in the context of renewal, because this is the aftermath of, of a physical flood of judgment that God has now sent on the whole earth because of human sin. And we might reflect on those two things there. First of all, the, the human sin, the human sin that led to that judgment We've skipped over that part of the story, but flick back just for a second with me to, to chapter 6 and verses 5 to 7, just so that we catch the grief that God expresses over the severity of our sin. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So sin, which all humanity was filled with all the time, was the reason for that judgment of the flood. And secondly, we can't help then but notice that the judgment for human sin 
had flow-on effects to the whole creation. The flood was an undoing of creation. All the way through chapters 6 and 7, if you do want to read through the story later, and so too are still coming into chapters 8 and 9 today. The text is, is actually just saturated with all the same kind of vocabulary from chapters 1 and 2 at creation. There's, there's the livestock and the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the things that creep on the ground, the dry land and the waters and the seas and so on. And it's just that in the judgment flood, that creation language is, is used the other way. Creation is now undone. This becomes a story of decreation because of human sin. It's almost as if this flood was the delayed judgment of, of even, yes, literal physical death now that, that should have fallen on Adam back in Genesis 3. By chapter 6 and 7, sin had by that stage so contaminated the world that, that God's judgment was, was wiping out creation itself. And if we're honest, we find that very hard to process. The idea that our sin should bring such a severe judgment that everything is taken out. But we find that hard to process because we don't have any real sense of how offensive our sin is to our holy God. How incompatible our sin is with his goodness. We've just become too comfortable in our sin. And and in our sin, we are just blinded to its severity. Nor do we stop and think about how our sin actually tarnishes everything around us too. Because what do we do with the livestock and the beasts and the birds and, and all the beautiful things in God's good creation? What do we do? We, we spoil creation with our sin. We spoil creation with our sin because humanity covets creation. We lust after it. People obsess over it, divide it up and, and fight over it. We make little idols out of all those plants and animals and birds and fish. We value the creation more than the God who created it, and we worship it. Our fallen human hearts tarnish the world around us with our idolatry. And yet we, we come to this and, and we object to this, this notion in the text that that we just looked at, that the judgment of our sin should have, should have also impacted the whole creation around us. I mean, can our sin, our sin, really be that offensive to God? That he should be this grieved? Friends, it should be a hard thing for us to try to process. That flood was truly awful if you read through that story later. I don't know to be honest, why people always seem to get stuck on, on later events in the Bible, like the destruction of the people of Canaan, for example. This here, I'm sorry, this here in the flood is where people should be getting stuck. This here is far more devastating and far harder for us to swallow, to, to, to harmonize with our view of God and, and to harmonize with our view of us too. This here is an undoing of the whole creation and because of human sin. And yet, as I say, this judgment actually came after a long time of grace.
by my accounting in, in Genesis chapter 5, if, if you read that one, uh, and all the generations between Adam and Noah, and, and the details then of chapters 6 and 7 in the flood, this, this judgment of physical death and destruction came about one and a half millennia after human sin first marred the creation in Genesis 3. Under God's patience, human sin had only spiralled way out of control if you read the in-between. Such that, as we just saw in chapter 6 and verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There was grace in the patience God had with the sin of humankind. And so too there was grace in the way the judgment was incomplete when eventually it did come. Because out of his grace, God saved from this cosmic judgment a remnant, as that text goes on in chapter 6 and verse 8. But Noah found favour. That is to say, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And with Noah, his household too. And with them, animals from all creation. God, in his grace, saves a small remnant from the judgment of human sin. And the flood subsides, and now the context is set for our covenant that we're here to look at today. A covenant between God and this remnant he's just saved. Having now, as we should have, a, a bit of an eye-opener as to the severity of our sin and a better sense, too, of God's grace. Both of which I think Noah seems to get as he steps off that ark. Because as we pick up our scripture today, in chapter 8 and verse 20, what is the first thing that Noah does as he steps off that ark? Genesis eight twenty, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, does that seem like a strange thing for Noah to do with, with that remnant that was just saved from judgment? That, that he would take a part of that remnant and, and take its life to make burnt offerings of sacrifices to the Lord? Noah was on that ark for just over a year, by way of reference. Just over a year, if you read through the story. We might imagine that that was an absolutely horrifying ordeal. To be sat on that ark while, while the world around you perished in such fashion. Like witnessing a tsunami that, that just kept on coming until everything but you was destroyed. And then the rest of the year left to sit and stew on that. And so I reckon Noah probably stepped off that ark in one of two mindsets. He may just have gone a bit crazy. But I would say rather he's now probably all the more clear. That through the experience he's just been through, he, he has come to a very keen sense of the severity of his own sin and, and the grace of God that he just received. 
And perhaps, therefore, he's making burnt offerings now as if to say, God, my sin too has offended you. I should have been swept away just like the rest. I acknowledge my sin and your grace to me. And the strongest possible way that he can demonstrate to God that he understands those two things is to shed this blood that should have been his. I think that's what's going on here, and I think that's why this ritual is pleasing, verse 21, or soothing to the Lord, because it puts a ceremonial shape to that truth that Noah too deserves judgment, but for the saving grace of God. And then God prepares a message of hope. Hope both for us and for all of creation, despite all our human sin. And that's what this whole covenant we're looking at today captures for us, really. It's hope. Hope that despite everything that we've just been thinking about, as to all of our sin and and, and all the judgment that it should bring, there will nevertheless be hope that we can survive. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Which straight away tells us that the problem of sin is still very much as real as ever, isn't it? I mean, if the flood resolved the problem of sin, then then why would God ever need to do this again, to send another flood of judgment like this? And just so we're clear about that point, explicitly in verse 21, he says, the intention of our hearts are still evil. So it's despite that situation of sin, that God here determines he will not repeat that judgment of of flood. And so we're left wondering for now how, how the problem of sin will be resolved. But in the meanwhile, we are given this nevertheless hope, a covenant of hope made with the remnant despite human sin. So this covenant is bigger and brighter and more stupendously gracious than the one that God made with Adam in in Genesis 3, because that covenant was made with pre-fall humanity. This covenant here that we're looking at in Genesis 9 is, is made with us in our already fallen sin. There is hope by God's grace despite all our sin. And it's bigger too in the sense that that God now expands on the blessings from what we looked at last week. Chapter 9 of verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants... I give you everything. Not just do we now have all the plants given to us for food, but but all the animals too. 
God pours out blessing upon this sinful remnant of humanity such that everything is now given into our hand. There is one instruction, however, reminiscent of Genesis 2. There is one small requirement for the remnant to agree to. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. That seems a very simple instruction, if, if you just stand back and think about it. Much like it was a very simple instruction in the garden, too. In the scheme of things, this is hardly what we would call restrictive, is it? I mean, Noah and his family and descendants can, can eat not only of all the plants, which had already been given to us, but, but now of all the animals, too. Surely we would sign this agreement in a flash, wouldn't we? Anything we want just not the blood, when in fact there was nothing that we deserved. Later in scripture, God explains the significance of the blood. In Leviticus chapter 17, God says that the blood is the life of the animal. And he says, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so God reserves the blood as sacred and it will serve ceremonially as a means of atonement to soothe God over the sin that still plagues all our souls. The life of the animal was precious. The sin of our souls is severe. We ought not lose sight of those things by adding the blood in with our day-to-day food. We might notice that there's no consequence spelt out here for for breaking this simple instruction. But after his harrowing ordeal and and, and 12 months on the ark to process the the severity of sin and and the wonder of God's grace, we we might think Noah should have a pretty good sense of, of the implications of breaking covenant with God. God, on the other hand, just seems to roll right ahead with the blessings. And now he seems to spell out a kind of protection, a sanctity of our lives. The life of sinful humanity is is also precious to God, and even more so. Verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And in the abundance of food given into our hands and and with God's concern for the sanctity of our life, he he, he then gives again his desire for us in verse 7. Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And in the rest of our scripture open, all of that just becomes 
formal. God God just lays down some formality around that promise to us and, and to creation. He makes it a formal covenant with this language, and he gives it a covenant sign that we can all look to just as he will look to it and remember this covenant. Verse 8, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The flood demonstrated the severity of our sin. The covenant now gives us hope. All life won't be destroyed by a judgment like that ever again in flood. The the hope of grace that the ark encapsulated for for just that tiny remnant for that year has, has now been put to the whole renewed creation that they began for all future generations. And yet all of this promise of hope here is couched in the physical Meanwhile, the problem of sin still continues. It is despite all our sin, chapter 8, verse 21, it is despite our sin that God gives this reprieve. And indeed, if you continue reading from where we finish here in chapter 9, you will see that sin bubbling out again from this very remnant. And if you keep reading It only gets worse from there. The covenant of hope here gives us security and comfort in a a specific physical sense, but it doesn't resolve our sin. So by the silence of God here on our unresolved sin, this covenant of hope actually sets up a great tension because we have seen very clearly, the severity of our sin. And we have seen very clearly the wonder of God's grace. But we are left hanging, longing, desiring, hoping for for more than this physical comfort, knowing full well now that our souls still need to be cleansed. What can I say? (laughs) Stay with us for the journey. God's covenant promises that we're going to keep looking at are going to get to our sin. 
God's covenant promises will get to our sin. The tension that is set up here about the severity of our sin and and our need to have it resolved will be spoken to and symbolized in all kinds of ways as we go, but it will finally be fulfilled in Jesus. Hang with us, friends. In Genesis 9, the door has only just opened to that hope. Because as much as this judgment has undone creation, so too it rebuilds with the hope for you and I, the hope that God would make covenant with a people fallen in sin. All deserving judgment like Adam, yet God will be gracious towards some. God has made humanity in his image, verse 6, and he has got purpose and promise and plan for us to fulfill our sin will not overcome him. Join us again next week and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that all since Adam are sinful and that that includes us too. We thank you for this scripture we have open where where we see in the flood leading up to this the severity of our sin and what we deserve. But at the same time, we see your grace in, in the hope of that ark and the covenant here that we open in chapter 8 and 9 with Noah and his family and all of creation that you made, this covenant that you will never again destroy everything with a flood like that. Nevertheless, it has opened things we need to explore. We still know that our sin must be dealt with. We pray that you would help us to see your answer to that problem as our series continues. For now, Father, be kind and gracious to us as we look and see and give us eyes so that we can see our sin. Give us eyes so that we can see our sin and clearly its severity, and a heart, therefore, to hate that sin like you do. And keep us safe in your grace in the meantime. In Jesus' name, amen.